This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Bjorn Kartomten. Bjorn is the founder of YesWatch. Bjorn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. We've known each other for quite quite a while, and I thought that it is now a good time for you to share your story, share the YesWatch story with the community. And it, it's, it's quite a story. I, I love your story, and I don't even know where to start. I guess we should start by describing what the product is. You created, you invented um, a particular way of indicating the time using sort of a, a combination of analog uh, digital dial. Uh, your watch is, is highly, we'll call it um, uh, celestial based. There's all kinds of indicators of what's going on, whether it's the position of the earth or the moon or a variety of things. Uh, there's really nothing else like it. It's a true uh, gadget watch. How else would you describe what the what this, I know you have multiple products, but what the, what, what Yes Watch is when you when, when you have to explain to people what exactly is your elevator pitch? In short, it uh, combines the steady ticking of hours, minutes, and seconds, which is a constant, with the natural time cycles of the sun and the moon. That's kind of the short. Okay. It combines man-made and natural time. You get both of them into one. How it started for me. I just wanted my Rolex Submariner to tell me when the sun would rise tomorrow morning. And it couldn't. And that's kind of where the whole thing started. So sunrise, sunset, which is a fantastic complication. And as we know, in the mechanical watch world, it does exist a little bit, but it's it's it has to adjust with the position you are on the Earth. So you can get a sunrise, sunset watch for one particular place on Earth relatively easily. But to have something which works in multiple places, that's that's where the challenge is for the Submariner, right? Yes. In uh, 1997, I was at the Basel Messe and I chatted with Martin Brown a little bit. I'm sure you know him. Sure. He has created this wonderful uh, mechanical watch called, I think it's called EOS, that gives you sunrise and sunset. And we talked a little bit. Yep, yep. And, you know, it can only do it. The mechanical movement can really only do it for one location. And if you want to change the location in his watch, you have to send it to him. And it takes about three months, no, three weeks to adjust those wheels. So from a practical travel standpoint, for example, it doesn't really work. Is it cool? Of course it is. It is. So, I mean, I basically ended up in a place where I needed to employ astronomical algorithms to get this done. It's the only way to capture it on the wrist. And to do that, you have to engage chip technology. There's no way around it. At least if you want it to be a freestanding. Yes, of course, of course. So let's put things into context here because Yes is not a company that was founded yesterday. We are in the smartwatch era and I think people take for granted the ability to program an algorithm into display and and have a nice output assuming you have a nice graphical display design. But when did you start this? I mean, we're talking about this this predates the blog to watch for sure. You know, you you were talking about the 1990s when you were having this conversation. When did this get started and what was the current state of the art? In technology, what, like, what did you have available to you at the time? Early 1999, I raised $400,000 and we incorporated a company called Wild, Sink, Wild Seed Inc. doing business as Yes Watch. That's what I remember um, Wild yeah, Seed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The women wanted to buy seed from me and I said, shit, I don't have the branding down yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it started way before that. It came about, the, to me, it was kind of like I connected a lot of dots 
to come to this place where I wanted to make my own watch. And it was part of it was just realizing how incredibly fascinating and intriguing the history of timekeeping and watchmaking is. This goes back thousands of years, you know what I mean? Timekeeping was one of the original challenges for humanity to figure out. So I, I kind of dug deep into it. So that's where it ended up for me after I just wanted my Rolex to show me time for sunrise. So it was kind of an education process. I think the first idea I had for it came on a trip to St. Bart's in 1994. I was on some beach. And that's the first time I really sketched out in the freaking sand the concept of one hand, sunrise, sunset, the day and night display. That's kind of is still the foundation of our watches. Now, this is a very useful complication, and I really want to talk about this because we take for granted often the complications that exist in mechanical watches, and they're relatively finite, and there's not that many. You know, there's the GMT, the chronograph, the various calendars, you know, a minute repeater, a couple of exotic things here and there. But for the most part, there's like, you know, maybe a dozen or so complications that exist, and that's based upon what was practical to develop mechanically as well as to to build into a, a wristwatch you would wear for years. But Sunrise Sunset has always been one of those elusive ones because the amount of computational, um, you know, gears and stuff you'd have to have in there, it'd be, it'd be totally insane. Yet this is an imminently useful complication, especially as the days and nights uh, change over the course of the year. It's so handy to have this what were people's reactions when you said, hey, I want to build an elegant watch with sort of a, a day-night day indicator, sunrise, sunset, everywhere um, around the world? You know, what was the responses at the time? Um, the watch is too big. That was the first response. <laughs> no, but to the concept, to the concept. Forget the actual aesthetics, the concept. I think the marketplace and the business had a very hard time with it. I remember I talked to a marketing guy in Hawaii before I started this, and he said, Bjorn, are you stark raving crazy? You think you're going to change the way people look at time? You're going to come in with a one-handed watch and do the sun and moon stuff? He said, it's so esoteric. But I went ahead either way. I went ahead and did it. And then I realized that in the kind of the regular watch marketplace, there was, I was kind of a very left turn for them. But then my first love, I got it from astronomers. They started buying. I remember I, it must have been 2001 or so. I got a half-page editorial in Astronomy magazine. And the next two weeks, I sold $40,000 worth of watches. And I said, wow. Wow, can. that's cool. I know, very cool. It's like, oh, wow, there's some, uh, there's some affirmation here. It's like I am, I'm onto something, you know what I mean? So then I discovered the photographers had a very similar reaction. Same with military people. Same with the pilots. So the guys who had a practical application were the one that kind of came in and bought it right away. So from those, it was very well received. From the traditional kind of watch jewelry world, right. they were not so receptive to it because it kind of was just like, I, I remember a guy in New York, uh, uh, a luxury store, I, he said, you know, Bjorn, if you want to sell this watch to me, we're going to raise the price to $7,000. You're going to have to go in and train all my salespeople how this freaking thing works. So we laughed, you know what I mean? So it has that challenge when you go up against the regular kind of the hour, minute, second watch. There's an educational thing, that, there's an educational thing right there. And it's true that traditional watch retailers are not, you know, always in the best position to educate. That's why like people like me, bloggers and, and online media people were so um, immediately successful is because the market was so hungry for an actual education because the retail people simply weren't doing it. And your watch, and I think it's so interesting to, to say that, 
if you make a good tool, it only becomes successful if the right people find it, right? You were able to reach out to a couple of niche groups of you know, hobbyists and professionals right, who right. are like, wow, this would be useful to me. Right, right, but it takes right. so much more to penetrate this, the, the mainstream. Totally. And I mean, <laughs> in, in all fairness, the watch business has always been about jewelry and beauty. If you look back to the 17, 1800s, only the rich people could afford watches. I mean, watches were basically born, worn by women as kind of a fashion statement to show their status, their luxury and all that kind of stuff. That's how it started. So I totally understand right. that this comes from a gems, jewelry, high-end perspective like that. I, I get that totally. And I have total respect and admiration for the beauty of a mechanical movement. You know, I mean, that's craftsmanship at its finest. But at the same time, I realized, hey, Bjorn, you're in the timekeeping business. This is about time for you. So that's kind of where I had to kind of think outside the box and how I could do this. And I want to say to people that one of the things that makes Yes Watch distinctive is that you have specifically not tried to be a luxury watch. You have tried to be as nice looking a wrist gadget as you're able to make for a price that you think you can get away with. It's as, 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 as you know, really as accessible as, as I think you're trying, as, as you can do. I mean, you have tried to make a democratic product as much as you can <laughs> in defiance of the trend, which is put gold all over it, get some fancy design to make it, and charge, you know, many multiples your production costs. Oh, that's so, so nice of you to say, so sweet of say. You know, one of the things I've learned about the watch business is that you have a ranking within the industry based on technology applied. So, for instance, if you have a digital watch, at least when I started, it was immediately kind of considered, you know, crap from China. I mean, I think that attitude has switched a little bit right now, and both quartz and digital are much more accepted. But there definitely is a kind of a ranking going on right there. And to me, the ranking needs to be on the timekeeping level. Also, also, you know what I mean? Okay, so what you're trying to say is that you're, you're, there's a bias against you because of the, the novelty. And, and, but there are brands like Orwork, which again, totally different than what you're trying to do, but have tried to combine both. They said, hey, we want to make nerdy wrist gadgets but we also want to do it in a way that the design community accepts. So we'll make them horrendously over-engineered. We'll employ everything available to us in micro you know, manufacturing to make these amazing little machines. Frankly, your watches are more practical, but they're sort of getting both, right? They're, they're able to do the nerd part, but they're also able yeah. to do the sort of high luxury part. Has anything like that ever attracted you? Do you ever think to yourself of making, you know, uh, I guess what they said, a $7,000 version of the product, not not with the same watch, but taking the guts, maybe adding to it a little bit and then making a form, you know, that, that seems like it would come from Milan. I mean, I would love to collaborate with one of these uh, case designers to do it. The truth is that when it comes to creating the module, the movement that I have in here, it is so specific. So you don't really have any choices in faceplate designs. And, I mean, you can mess around with the hand. You can play with the hand a little bit. But I think that's part of the restriction. You don't have the freedom in the design. Once you've kind of set this, this LCD in, in design, you don't have that much flexibility with it. You know what? I'm, I'm gonna, I understand what you're saying, and I know why you're saying it. But I'm going to challenge you just because I think this is how beautiful design comes about. You've invented a way of looking at the day 
uh, which is is very clever. I, I love user interfaces. I've always been a user interface nerd, and I, I don't know that everyone is. But if you look at the dial and you picture it as being the representation of an entire day, like one big pie, the fact that it has one hand makes sense. Mm. Uh, the, the dial is very intuitive. Mm. There's a lot of ways to indicate what Bjorn has created on Yes, but this way, uh, again, is... is is very special in an analogic sense. It's a digital concept, but it uses an analog way of displaying the day, which it, it very much is, in in its heart, a traditional watch, right? Because you're not just having numbers and things. You have to use a digital dial to a degree to show it. But again, this is this is still an analog dial, you know, ninety yes. percent. Yes. And I think that's a very big deal. And I think, mm. and so my, I guess my 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 greater point is a designer who isn't an engineer, but a designer, I think could take this, see what you're doing with it, and think of ways to make it maybe sexier, more designer that you would have never imagined. I'm not saying you could do it. You've taken it very far. No, I, but I, I totally think, agree with you. I think those designers are out there. I, I'm, you know, it's my, my instinct. I'd love some collaboration. We have something on the drawing table and I'd love to collaborate with somebody on it, but I haven't really found, the, found that person or looked that hard for it, but maybe this can bring somebody out to to that collaboration. But I do want to say about the one hand is that, you know, if you uh, research history of timekeeping, the original church towers in Europe's 1400, 1500, they had one hand, they had one 24 hour hand. If you look at the big clock tower in Prague, you know, that has one hand. So this in a certain sense- Okay, but do you know why? You don't want to be associated with those with those old clocks. You want to know why? Well, they looked at the 24 hour day. So on that Accurate enough. They, they, the minute hand was a later complication. They were so inaccurate, the one hand is all they needed. They weren't accurate enough. That was the problem. Well, I, I agree. I totally agree with it. And that's why they slowly <laughs> went to China. No, no. I mean, I have had, I mean, creating this hand here, first of all, there isn't a really a 24-hour movement on the market that is small enough to fit into these watches. So we used the Ronda movement and we reduced, we slowed it down to 24 hours and finding one with small wheels that is accurate is actually very tricky. I mean, I yeah, think I'll the bet. best, best the hand, if you, if you read it now, when I turn my watch on right now, I mean, I think the accuracy on the hand is plus minus four or five minutes in visual terms. You know what I mean? So it's very right. tricky to run that 24 hour, uh, 24 hour hand accurate. It is. So, I mean, I totally understand the evolution from it. But in a certain way, the original, Timing was all based around the sun, which circles the day and, you know, once a day. It just goes around once every day, not twice. Yeah, and but, you know, so but just going back to the sort of innovation inherent in the way you displayed it, it wasn't just the one hand. It was also how you created the sort of pie time where you mm. have the shaded areas, which is where the yes. sun is going down yes. or coming out, total darkness. And then again, that, that changes over time and our, you know, over the course of the of the year. And our brain responds, in my opinion, much better to these analog changes of shapes versus just pure numbers, which are a lot more abstract to us. At least for me as a creative person, I respond better to these shapes. So I learn about how the seasons change. I perceive the speed more. I recognize very fully that, wow, in the summer, there's like this much more light or in the winter, there's this much more light. A lot of that was way more abstract to me before I started ever wearing your watches. And I want to mm, thank you yeah. For Thank allowing you. me to see things that way. I've had hundreds of guys send me, email me that message exactly. And I really, that, really. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably why that why I'm still in the business. <laughs> if you know what I mean. 
it's it's one of the things that keeps you going because it relates on a level that isn't about money. It isn't about prestige. It's just, oh, I gave this guy some further insight into time. You know, thank you. I'm so happy I could do it. So that is, those are sweet moments. Now, now is that is that a you innovation? Like, where did that all come? Because I'm seeing sort of the late 90s and the 90s you were thinking about this. You know, I guess, what is your background? Like, describe to people you know, what part of this you did, what you needed other people to do and, and, and the background you had that made it possible for you to, you know, invent a, a particular type of a watch and, and a brand behind it. Wow, that's a big question. I mean, the short of it is I was born and raised in Norway. I'm kind of a farm boy that worked as a lumberjack and a carpenter until in 1979, I bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco and I stayed in California. And I hit the 80s hard, you know what I mean? I was the creative director for the Sharp Image. Probably a, oh, cool. Right, yeah, right. Probably, we talked about that. Probably a faded bell for a lot of them here. But I learned a lot about product, product sales, marketing, and that kind of stuff through it. And then I'm not exactly sure why I was kind of destined to do this kind of a timepiece. I think part of it has to do with growing up in Norway, where we have extreme differences between day and night. For instance, I lived north in Norway for three years, and we had six weeks of pure darkness in the wintertime. And we had six weeks of pure summertime in the summer, you know what I mean? So you kind of learn to see these cycles of day and night kind of on a different level. You experience them up close. So I think that was part of the part of the inspiration for me. But I studied furniture design and I did a whole bunch of different jobs in, uh, in uh, San Francisco, dozens probably, before I ended up doing my own agency. And then at one point, I decided to do this watch, and I thought it was going to be a mechanical watch. I thought I was going to do it out of Switzerland, but it turned out to do these kind of digital watches. I mean, I needed 24 different vendors to put this watch together. It's complicated. Wow. Yeah. Uh, at the time, two of them existed in USA, a programming group out of San Diego and a cash guy. Six of them ex existed in Switzerland. All of them were presented on a smurgos board in Hong Kong. So it's like, oh, okay, this is where it's happening. But then you also then all of a sudden, you, then you fall into that whole made in China thing. You know what I mean? There's a judgment that comes with it, you know, that has been, you, you know all about it. It's like where you produce sure, comes sure. in. It's like, so, you know, I remember in the beginning, you know, we would, we were required to put made in China on the watch. So we put that on a little sticker inside the case. You know what I mean? <laughs> All kinds of stuff to kind of avoid that. But I have to say that I have had nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, we had to, you know, it's like if I see made in China, I throw it out. And I understand this, the sentiment behind that. But, you know, I have, I have to say that I have found my Hong Kong team to be loyal, hardworking, and on the ball. The biggest challenge we've had is quality, quality control, getting it to work just like we want it to be. I mean, there are many, many pieces in there. And, you know, one little thing goes wrong. And a customer will find it. I guarantee you he'll find it. And rightfully oh, yeah. so. Rightfully so. I mean, I have learned an enormous amount from feedback from our customers over the years. For instance, the current versions have the Moonrise and Moonset dial. That is a purely customer-driven request. I think it was the astronomers that says, hey, Bjorn, you got to add Moonrise and Moonset to this watch. And we looked at it and said, oh, it's already in the algorithms. Let's add it. You know what I mean? Right. Okay, so let, let's talk about that uh, element of building the watch, because I think that there's a few things to f focus on there. Now, the first thing is, is you had a specific idea of what you wanted, because you approached it first as a designer. 
And a lot of entrepreneurs are the other way around. They ask themselves, what can I get built? And then how do I build a business around it? You, because you're a product designer, you focus on this is the thing I want. How do I make as close to this thing as possible? I look right? for years. I look for years. Yeah. No, I, so I, again, I'll tell, you, tell the story in a second here, but I just sort of want to prelude that with this notion that most entrepreneurs, if they have an idea of something that they want, which can't be made, they're essentially going to give up. And it's not any fault of their own, but if you you know have only a limited amount of time or money or interest in a particular area and the market doesn't make what you want already or there is not like one factory you can go to, most people are going to give up. You you didn't. You continued to move forward and eventually, you know, built it in many versions of it. What what allowed for that? Was it was it the fact that you were able to have investors with a particular level of persistence? Was it not having any idea how hard it would be when you got started? Just talk about that because again, there's other people in your shoes that have these ideas and maybe should know what they're getting involved with. Wow, that are some good questions, Ariel. I found the commitment. And I think that's the most important thing of all. You have to be committed. You have to be willing to go the distance. When it came to um, starting, I mean, I was a total rookie, right? I had no idea. I just came up with the idea. I just want my Rolex to give me time for sunrise, period. That's where I started. And it's like, it took me years to look for this and find and kind of understood. And I learned, I mean, I traveled to the Basel Messe Show several times. And I learned, and and I realized the technology that I was looking for just wasn't readily available. So you had to kind of start from very much from, from scratch with everything. There was no off-the-shelf parts to buy. But yes, I, had, I was lucky. I got funded. Without that funding, it wouldn't have happened. I uh, found some connections in Hong Kong that put me on the right track. For instance, the programmer, the programmer that I'm with today is the original programmer. She's a, she's a lady that I've worked with all these years. She's a total rock. She's smart as, as, as you know, they come and completely reliable. So she has been a rock in Hong Kong. You need to have some team members that are there with you and believe with you in it. So those are things. And then, but you know, a lot of the things we learned the hard way. I mean, one of the first things I learned in the business was what they call FR, FFR, which is field failure rate. That basically means how many of your watches die in the marketplace one year in. The first One year in, okay. One year in. That's kind of the test, you know, they got to last for, for a year. And then after that, you know, maybe you've beaten the shit out of it and it's not going to work anymore. But, and I remember the first shipment of a thousand watches I got out of the box when I packed them out, we had an 80% field failure rate. Oh my gosh. I shipped them all back to Hong Kong and we read it. And you learn these extremely hard lessons on quality control. It's like, if you don't have quality, you don't have shit. I mean, forget it, go home. You know what I mean? Very critical. Well, wh- why, why is that? I mean... There's sort of an adage sometimes that I like to say that there are certain manufacturers, um, it's not only in Asia, but I think there's sort of a high volume of them just sort of given the way that their efficiencies work, that like if you ask them to build you a car and you forget to include a steering wheel, they'll just build you a car without a steering wheel and not really sort of mention it. Whereas you as a client are thinking like, you could have brought that up that I forgot something, right? They'll just sort of build exactly what you say. They won't test it. They won't ask any questions. They're like, well, this is what you ordered. Is, is, that, is that what happens a lot? Or is it also more than that? You're totally spot on. You're totally come on. I mean, I have pondered this quite a bit because I have ended up in, um, I, I established my first connection with Hong Kong in 1981. Okay. I've been in and out of that town a lot. I know a little bit about the Chinese culture. In 1960, we manufactured in USA 91% of all goods in the world. Today, 
China manufactures 55%. We make maybe six of it in 6% in USA. And what you learn is that I think we came there. The original reason we came to China and to Asia was cheap labor. Everybody wants a discount. We ran down to Walmart. We ran down to the store. And we wanted something that was cheaper. That was a better deal. And that deal you could have by basically lowering the labor costs. So we shipped all these jobs to Asia. And the whole watch manufacturing business went over there. So what happens is that because you expect this incredible focus on cheap price, right? Because we're always price, price, price. They end up saying, well, tell us what you want. We'll do it. We don't really give a shit, okay? It's hard to find that Chinese partner, at least it was then, that would also back up the quality aspect, the thinking aspect of what if, you know, this happens. And I have wrestled with that many, many, many times. I mean, I remember the first case guy that I worked with in Hong Kong. We did the thousand watches, right? I told you 80% of them broke. He fired my ass. He said, I am firing you. I don't want to work with you. And I said, but you made the case that broke. And he said, well, you told me to engineer them like that. And it's like, oh, okay. You don't give a shit. You, I told you to do this. So you, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I do. I know. That's why I, I brought it up. And it, it's so much trial and error. So much trial and error. So, I mean, I've encountered that many, many times. But now we're down to, I mean, I think on our last run, our FFR was below 3%. That's good. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very, it's very good. I mean, in the, one of the things that people forget to talk about when it comes to the traditional mechanical watches is these discussions of failure rates and things like that are a bit passe because this has all been done in the past. You know, like 30 years ago, these movements have had all their kinks engineered out. And for the most part, everyone today knows how to make an accurate watch, a water-resistant watch, a bracelet that won't fall apart, a crystal that won't pop out, a bezel that will stay on. Like These used to be much more common issues when these are more innocent products and now they're mature and grown up and you know it's 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 really the one or two percent of, of fit and finish differences that we notice and i could use some improvement there i realized that i remember in the 80s people have told me many times hey look the 80s are back you know and they look at my watch and i realized i may have a bit of a dated design element to it right there but you know i'm i'm open to look for that refinement that beautification i realize how important beauty is you know, beauty is actually more important than quality, but you got to have both. You do. Now, you are on the seventh version of your primary watch. You've had a couple of other ones here and there. What do you do with each new version of it, right? Because you had an idea. Do you add features? Do you make it better? Because again, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong in terms of what version you're at, but what have you done with each of the upgrades, fixes, et cetera? Talk about, you know, talk about that a little bit. The first four versions were just programming updates. We went from the most simple watch that gave you sunrise and sunset, hardcore, no DST, no moonrise, no moonset, nothing that basic. And we took it up through the first four until it's almost like it is today. It didn't have twilight, but it's almost like it is today. And then you realize that these things had to be powered by batteries. And when these batteries go out, I think you half of them are just sitting in empty drawers with dead batteries. You know what I mean? Powering a watch is tricky. I mean, a mechanical watch will run for about 72 hours and you're going to put it on a, on a spindle, you know what I mean, to run it. So after the fourth version, it coincided with the 2008 crack. And I had manufactured thousands of watches. So I had inventory. So we decided to make our watches. I thought I was a genius. We're going to make them rechargeable. So you don't have to screw around with these batteries all the time. And of course, that opened up an entire other Pandora's box, rechargeable power, batteries, 
chemistry, water system. Oh, wow. They just throw it at you. You thought you were going to simplify it, and instead you complicated the hell out of it. You know what I mean? Putting a battery in there was actually the easy solution, except guys didn't want to do it. But now in the V7, we've actually perfected it to it where it's a wireless charging system. So you get about three months of battery life out of a full night of charging, which is very good. I couldn't create a watch that I had to recharge every day or two. That'd be a lot. That'd be a lot. Now you've done other things. You've added tritium gas tubes. Yes. You've, you know, you've, you've done other enhancements. You've tried to get the lightest cases possible with titanium. Um, you know, you allow people to choose between all these bezel styles and colors and straps. I mean, I'm intimidated by the prospect of even figuring one of these things out in terms of like just, you know, customizing it. it it's, it's a lot. You've tried to build in sort of a robust experience. Has this been just you making, these, making up these options or do you have, you know, a consumer says, I'd like this type of bezel? Because again, if you shop at the website, it could be a little bit intimidating if you don't know oh, what you're doing. No, no. I mean, I, I like to say, you know, that I, I got into the watch business to simplify time and instead I complicated the hell out of it. So I realized that I have built what is a relatively complicated, complex timepiece with many choices and a simplification might be in order, which might be what our next version is about. But um, as far as the, re, uh, a couple of things comes up when you say the, the number one thing that for me has been critical throughout all this year is accuracy and readability. I'm sure most of your guys have read Longitude with John Harrison, his story about how the Brits invented the first accurate H4 right. for sailing. I mean, it was a critical moment in our evolution of navigating the oceans. Today, of course, we have GPS and all that kind of stuff, so it's all. But, you know, you find that throughout history, accuracy has been one of the most critical elements of timekeeping. If it wasn't accurate, it wasn't really that worthwhile, and I still think it is an essential part of it. So then when you start dabbling with the sun and the moon, the times of this, you get the same accuracy uh, demand criteria put upon that one. So that all of a sudden becomes pretty challenged. You've got to have your, you, your calculations got to be right. You have astronomers, uh, scientists. I have people, you know, they check me. The first thing a guy that buys a watch is going to do, he's going to check his watch to see that it runs right. And if he can find something where he can tell you you could do it better, he's going to do it. Bless his heart, you know. Wait, wait, so let me get this straight. You... You are personally programming the algorithms? No, 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 no. I am Miss Yang, my lady in Hong Kong, has done all the programming. I am okay, but you have but you had to find a programmer. Like that's an in-house process. I found that through some party connection. I was a hard party goer in uh, San Francisco, and I met some beautiful ladies. We were partying, and one of these ladies knew a guy in Hong Kong, and I hooked up with him, and that's how I found my programmer. It was totally under the radar. The whole thing, you know what I mean? I just that's incredible. I, I put out the I put out the need in the universe that I said I got to make this freaking watch. How can I do it? I don't know where and how to start even because I've been to Switzerland. I realized I can't do this in Switzerland. Not going to happen. So yes, uh, I found the guy. All right. So let, let me let me go back and and clarify something, which again I think is important to, to to bring up and why I wanted to have you on the show in a big way. There's a big to do about in-house movements, especially with mechanical. Oh, you made a movement by yourself. Tell us about grinding the gears. Tell us about polishing the bridges. Mm. You have done the equivalent of that in something which I think is harder, but albeit quite different, in making a, a, an electronic movement. You had to take bits and pieces that were out there, but for the most part, build something to your spec from the screen, mm. the hand, mm. to the software. You made an in-house movement 
It took you a long time. You have to keep improving it. But, you know, really for the digital era. And yes. there's not that much sort of boutique, in-house courts movements going on. It is a very rare thing. You're one of the very, very... Very, very rare, very rare. But for me, you know, the way I look at it, I'm in the timekeeping business. I'm in the business of giving you a, a broader a range of understanding time and timekeeping. So, for instance, one of the things I discovered when I dug into this and I wanted to learn, for instance, in 1997, I met with the curator at the famed museum in uh, Biel, La Chaux de Fonds. You know what I mean? I asked the curator, what does the 24-hour mean? Where does it come from? And she just looked at me and she said, I don't know, Björn. It's like, wow, here we are. We are in the elite of the elite, the best guys, the Swiss guys, and they don't know what 24-hour means. So that, to me, kind of caused a search into the history of timekeeping. And what you realize wait, 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 is, what is... What does it mean? When you say... Again, I'm not totally sure I understand the question, but what is the I answer? Just, I just uh, wanted to understand why there were 24 hours in a day. Oh, I see. Very simple. I said, why are there 24 hours in a day? And she said, I don't really know. It's like, wow, the, the world runs on a timekeeping system, and we don't really know the essence of it. So it well, there's a better answer, a very Swiss answer is BR. The answer is tradition because we've always done it that way for thousands of years. This uh, the way I found out. I, I think I think the 24 hours harks back about seven, eight thousand years to Babylonian. Oh, astronomy. at least at least I mean, maybe longer. It goes probably back, longer. And it was all based on the starry sky. If you look at the timekeeping we have today, it's all based on the spinning of the earth, the spinning of the moon and the spinning of the sun. These are the three elements of timekeeping. They're essential to all calendars, everything. The problem is that these three do not sync up. They never sync up. They just run on their own, own cycle, you know what I mean? So well, trying to collect all okay. three of them into one timepiece is very tricky. And that's what our forefathers of timekeeping wanted to do. But it's just so tricky to capture them. Makes so sense? It does. And I think I want to mention, I'd love your opinion on this matter, that timekeeping as we know it, is a human invention. What we're doing is not tracking some law of the universe. I mean, according to physics, time doesn't even really exist, though we intuitively feel that something does. But timekeepers is a human invention allowing us to track intervals of time, segments of time, mm. and make predictions on that. But it is a human invention. Elements mm. of it are arbitrary. Yes, it's relying on certain natural constants or mm. at least things that, that measure to be mostly constant. But the reality is, is that this is, uh, this is our own little toy. We, as a species, created timekeeping. It's something we made. Watches are like weird offspring that we invented, you know, just like cars. It's like mm. we have this fondness because humanity created this other life form known as wristwatch and an automobile. Mm. Mm. And, and it's something we created. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will look great on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch-collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the blog to watch store carries have been designed and curated by the blog to watch editorial team. 
We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. It harks back to some very deep, I think, human instincts. I think one of the things we all have, and we are all kind of innately in tune with this body time, okay? We are here for a very limited number of years, and it makes all of us feel like we want to get the most out of this. So for me, timekeeping helps you do that. It's a way to manage your time and make it better. And I think, I mean, if you look at the efficiency of the 235959, we have built the most magnificent technological society on top of this time frequency. And it's just a machine frequency. And it's human-made. And it's beautiful. You know what I mean? Jet planes, banks, computers all need this to run. But to me, it's like, well, what about natural time? Isn't that almost just as critical? That's kind of where I wanted to add something. That's where I wanted to. And, and, and you know, it's so, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, let's become more aware of natural time, environmental time, nature's time. I guess that's all. What, what about clocks? It, it dawns upon me that you're designed in a larger format, like something for a wall or something like that would have appeal. Did you ever experiment with taking it off the wrist? Because your approach is actually the opposite of many watchmakers before you. Most watchmaking before you is, let's take it from the larger size to the smaller size. Mm. You went directly to a wristwatch. Have you tried to go to a larger format? Oh, I've had ideas for desk clock, uh, wall clock, travel alarm. All of it kind of hinges on, I think you reach a ceiling of MSRP that doesn't really allow for this to to be manufactured cost effectively. I mean, I have, I, I mean, what I'm, about clock two? I don't know how much does it retail for thousands. <laughs> clock twos are very expensive. I have to Google it. I mean, I've had, I have had tons of a guy, a lot of guys ask for, ask for a pocket watch. To me, that's kind of the almost the nearest and dearest to pocket watch. You can put everything in there and you can still carry it with you. I don't know. Um, I see like offices. I see, you know, homes. I think these would just be mm. great art pieces. Like, you well, could I charge agree. a few hundred bucks for it. I agree. I mean, I think all my products production costs would actually go up. I mean, I don't have to contend with maybe. I mean, I mean, I have maybe I should look more into it. It is a good idea. I've always thought. I mean, my original business plan in 1999 called for all these different watches, but I got stuck on just making this watch, the wristwatch, work to make that happen. I mean, it's wonderful to have the ambition, and you've come so long. But I think that's so crucial to the the story here is that you're always going to be limited by financial resources. Very few people have like Bruce Wayne money and, you know, can just like throw as much R&D as they want behind it. There's so many caps because of money and time and effort that you have to choose so wisely around what you do next. It must be so frustrating because like you have a little money, you're like, okay, I can do one thing. What is it? That must be so hard to decide, right? Well, so far it's actually been uh, pretty ex easy to decide what I'm going to spend it on. I guess the wish was that I had more and a bigger manufacturing capacity so I could do more of it. But I never feel that finding my next direction was that hard. But I mean, a lot of it was linked just to the fact that you have to continually improve this product. I mean, if you look at the right. mechanical watch piece, it's been, it's, been make, it's been making it for hundreds of years. Okay? It has centuries of experience in manufacturing a mechanical watch. I had zero experience in this. So you learn a lot. And a lot of it has to just be fixed. You know what I mean? It has to be repaired, fixed, you know. 
So that's what what, what are what are the thickest components? Because I'm sure that you'd love to make your watch smaller. What what is preventing you from making it significantly smaller? The biggest reason I can't make it thinner is the analog hand. And to I me, see. the hand, and to me, the analog hand represents kind of the classic ancient soul in this timepiece. I did the Tati and the Luna. They were all digital, and they didn't sell anywhere near as well as this one did. They were also older. How much space? How much space does it take? Well, what you end up here is you have, end up stacking layer. This is what you call an anadigital construction, right? So you have to yeah. stack all these layers on top of each other. And when we, at the end, added on the wireless charging and the coil inside to get all that right, it is now a substantial 46 by 16 millimeter watch. You know, it's, by, it's, six, by 16 thick? 16 thick, yeah. yeah. 16 and that thick. Is, and that is, you know, to your, to your traditional watch buyer, they don't really want to go above 42 by 12 or 42 by 11. And I get, yeah. it. I get it. I mean, the first rejections I got in, 19, in 2000 when I came to people to sell, to pitch my watch was, hey, it's too big. We're not interested. Forget it. It looks like a tuna can on my wrist. I can't wear it. You know what I mean? And it takes like an Apple level budget to, to, to invest in significant miniaturization. It can be done, but you're talking about like some moonshot budgets. Like this takes years. You have to test new materials, new manufacturing techniques. This is like some serious investment, right? Serious. I mean, I think we have done kind of a fantastic job on the shoestring budget. I think, I mean, as far as I can tell today, I, I have kind of accomplished what I set out to do. And now that is like, wow, you did that, Bjorn. That is beautiful. Now, can you make a lot of money on it? I don't know, but at least you did it. I just want it to go so much further. You know what I mean? Because I, I love what it is. I've always loved what it is. And I've known the challenges you've had in entering, you know, more, more traditional luxury watch market or something like that. Like there's there's barriers, but at heart, the concept is so appealing. It's so emotional and practical and easy to understand, I think, if you're able to render it as effectively as today's technology allows. Um, I think that there's sort of enough people out there that want it to, to go as quickly as, as as far as possible. But then you have another contingent of people who, rather than look at what the watch is trying to do, they look at sort of just what the overall shape makes them feel and think about. And, and I don't think they ever get to the heart of it. And for me, it's always been uh, and again, maybe this is just an inherent to being sort of a watch nerd is you get frustrated that mainstream doesn't see things for what they're valuable for. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I, I understand the power of beauty. I can see why you can look at a watch and, and say this is beautiful and that's where you stop because that's what we've been doing for hundreds of years. You know what I mean? It has been kind of a beauty brand status evaluation when you look at a watch. I get it. For me, it's just like I wanted to make it about timekeeping. For me, the essence was time itself. I put time in the driver's seat. You know what I mean? I think they put beauty and status and prestige maybe in the driver's seat. And we put more like timekeeping in the driver's seat. But I understand and accept both avenues as, you know, totally perfectly legit for what you're doing to try to accomplish your goal. So have you thought about creating a software version of your dial for smartwatches? Because I think that it would actually be quite successful. Um, <laughs> To make yeah. it so you could sell for a few bucks, maybe your, you know, your maybe not the whole system, but maybe just the dial. It would be good, interesting ad for the brand. And I don't know, it seems like it'd be successful. I couldn't agree more. I think somebody suggested first, that first 15 years ago, and I've tried a number of different ways to do it. And I was never able to pull it off. Maybe it's because I'm not really an engineer at heart. Maybe I'm more of a concept idea guy. But, you know, there are several apps out there now, right now that do this very well. I mean, a couple of them are buddies of mine. I talked to them today. So this app is out there. I think you can right now get it on your Apple Watch, a very similar 
day night display like we have. It's, it's similar, but it's not the same. I mean, yours is a particularly satisfying way for my eyes, right? Because if you pi- picture the day as a complete circle, and then you imagine that entire circle being segmented between light and dark and mm. the variation between, mm. and then you see the, the hour hand as, as basically just being, uh, you know, your travel through it. Yeah, it's your travel through that, through that time and space it is, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'd love to do it. My, my program in Hong Kong, she does not. I, I've talked to her about it 10 years ago. She said, Bjorn, I don't have the wherewithal to turn this into, a, into an app for you. It's just, I yeah, it's a whole team. That's a whole team. So, you know, that's, look, something- that's a Kickstarter project. I mean, you could price that out and put that on Kickstarter. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've had great success. We've done two Kickstarter campaign and they've both been, uh, uh, funded more than, more than we asked for. I mean, if there's somebody out there that's listening to this and want to do that collaborative project, tell them to get in touch with me. I am, I would only be kind of the creative visionary guy. I don't really know that much about programming. So, I mean, if somebody that has that ability wants to collaborate, I'm game. There's got to be a story here on how difficult it is to find help when you're trying to build something, whether it's software or or hardware. Finding good help is so hard. And I think that that's sort of an enduring lesson of anyone who Mm. goes into small batch manufacturing, whether you're making electronic or traditional movements and cases and bracelets. It's not and, I, and again, this is a theme that we've talked about in Superlative with many guests, but it's not so straightforward as like, hey, manufacturer, I'd like a bunch of cases. Could you make <laughs> them perfect the first time? You're going to deliver them on time? Fantastic. Uh, uh, like, that doesn't it's, happen. It doesn't it's a happen. struggle. Talk, uh, talk about that. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, field fa- failure rate, quality control. It, it's the one thing that you get. You're going to be measured by it and you should be measured by it. It's the business we're in. We, we've chosen to be in this business of time measurement and there's an element of accuracy and quality and water resistance and just sheer consumer expectations that we have to have to fulfill you know what i mean and when you get into manufacturing any number of those things could go wrong for instance the first time i did screw pins i assumed that the back end of the screw pins with a hex screwdriver would be standard they just do it and the first batch I got was completely screwed up you know what i mean i couldn't use them so i went to a straight just made me a standard a screwdriver when it's just one flat screw you know what i mean it's these details and they come up and bite you in the butt and you don't really expect them to do it you assume that this is something the business has figured out you assume that there's some sort of quality of standard that these guys have kind of agreed upon and that's how they do it and that is just not the case you know what i mean is there a solution to that right like is it just an ongoing struggle with suppliers meaning that that's sort of the natural law you have, of things. You have to you have to be on it 24-7. You have to always... It's, it's, it's not just it's, a learning curve. It's like, no, it's no, not it's, beginner's luck. It's just, when you start out, it's going to be always as difficult. They're not yeah. going to want to do it. You're going to have to sit on them. It's just yeah, going to be hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like for instance, right now, I work with four main manufacturers out of China and all the other sub-vendors, they manage them. But you know, because COVID, one of them went out of business. The guy that actually assembled our modules went the freak out of business last September. They said, sorry, Bjorn, we're closing our doors. And this shit happens to you and you get no warning. They basically wow. tell you when they close the doors. It's happened to me several times. But luckily, you know, we, my my lady, Miss Yang, the ones that I worked with, she found a new source, a better manufacturer. We're working with them right now. We handed all the information over to them, the specs, the hints, everything we've learned. And still, they had to relearn two of the same mistakes over again. You know what I mean? And it delayed my production with one month. 
which is why I'm now in Kusamui waiting. <laughs> you know what the silver lining of this business has been for me? What's that? I can exist on my island, on my tropical island, while I wait for them to get it together. Now, that's an interesting part of this. People see watches as being part of the glamour lifestyle. It's about rewarding yourself, of course, luxury, excess at times, showing off and decadence. It is sometimes that way behind the scenes. It is, you know, not always that way. But talk a little bit more about, you know, some of the fringe benefits of being someone who has made their career the watch industry. Because again, you are on a fringe, but you are you are part of the watch industry. You are doing a watch industry thing. And I think for a lot of people, they associate that with, it's not necessarily like a wealthy lifestyle, but an interesting and good lifestyle and one that you would want. And I, and I agree. I, I do a lot of cool things that people are probably envious about, rightfully so. Has it been good for you, the, the, the watch industry lifestyle? I love it. I've loved it. I've loved it. It's been a most fantastic journey. It's been a fantastic experience. I still love it. But you know, when I started... I thought I was going to have a glamorous life like you to run around to fancy trade shows and meet with all the hobnob with all the luxury specialists, you know what I mean? But that is not what happened. I mean, it's a totally different. I mean, the manufacturing side of it is basically it's ruthless. So you so you learn that one. But at the same time, it gave me a freedom. I always I grew up in Norway. I, I froze a lot as a young man. So I always had an island dream. So when I started working out of Hong Kong, I discovered, oh, wow, there's a three-hour flight to Kusamui. I'm going to go and check that place out. So for me, it's like, wow, the silver lining of the watch business has been fantastic to me. I mean, it fulfilled my island dream, and I didn't even know it. You know what I mean? It's like destiny. Is, is Hong Kong and China going to permanently be the home for your manufacturing and things like that? The world is changing. Hong Kong has changed, is continued changing. You know, is your your concept, of course, can be taken anywhere. But I'm just curious, from your perspective, wh- what are your thoughts about the next few years? Obviously, you're going to keep going and doing things more interesting. But what, 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 you know, what, what are you seeing out there? That's a good question, my friend. That's a good question. China and Hong Kong, you know. Mm. Hong Kong was a British spearhead, a British enclave that brought all the sophistication and money and capitalism to China and the Chinese mainland. I mean, Hong Kong spawned that entire place, you know. So for me now to see that it's kind of being ruled hard is a really sad chapter. I remember in the 80s, you know, we partied in Hong Kong. We had fun, you know what I mean? The place had more Rolls Royce per square meter than any other place on the planet. You know what I mean? It was happening. But I'm hoping that it'll bloom again. I'm hoping that it'll come back. I mean, my guy, Nathan, that uh, runs the Assembly of the Watchers, he moved to London for two years to move his family and kids because he got afraid. But he moved back to Hong Kong, you know, a month ago. Interesting. And, and I, I, I actually think, I mean, you're not going to kill the Hong Kong energy that easily, okay? It's like the energy in San Francisco. Hey, we're the gold miners, okay? We're going to push this through. Let's create Silicon Valley. So I think Hong Kong will bloom again. It'll be different, you know? For me, it's hard to think of countries that do not allow free speech. I mean, there's a monumental battle going on between democracy and dictatorship in the planet today. Yeah. And I know yeah. what side I'm on, you know what I mean? I am clear on what side I'm on. And it's really sad to just see some of the, some of the bullshit that's going down, you know, like, oh my God, you know, what is happening here? I think all it takes is having been to Hong Kong during one of the sort of the highlight eras where it was very free and very outspoken mm. and mm. 
very robust with sort of friendly consumerism as far as the eye can see, and maybe a, a more uh, more contemporary Chinese city, which might be very vibrant, but isn't alive in the same way, doesn't have the internationalism, the free exchange. You just have to have had that comparison. I have had it, you've had it, not everyone yeah. has had it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, it is a shame what has happened. But you know, I, I look at my guys over there, the people that I work with, we're as close as ever. None of them wants business to go away. They just want business to grow, you know what I mean? They see the BS just like we do. It's like, screw this, we just want to do business, you know what I mean? And there's an element of the Chinese culture there that I, I have respect for that, you know? Let's just get it done, you know what I mean? Hopefully that's the answer. I mean, I know that that's, that's the, you know, the, the, the recommended prescribed uh, solution for the social woes is absorb yourself and work and making money and everything will be fine. If it works, great, but there needs to be a lot of economic opportunities. You know, I, for many years in a row, went to the Hong Kong Watch and Clock Fair, which was an incredible show, had a lot of fun there, met so many interesting people, learned a lot, can't wait to go back. But I haven't been there over the last several years, of course, because it hasn't been possible. The show, the show has returned and it continues to go on and I receive their messages and, you know, they're not, they're not inviting any foreign uh, press right now. Uh, but it is really quite amazing what happens there uh, in terms of watches. So much can be done there that can't be done anywhere in the world. But it does appear that especially for sort of small batch um, electronics manufacturing, other places are popping up. Mm. And you might be able to shop around a little bit more, at least have some diversity or maybe get some things made in other places. And Which I think that might be interesting of? to you. Have you heard of anything in Vietnam? Is anybody in Vietnam making watches? I don't know about Vietnam. Um, I know that India is getting a bit more serious about it. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. You know, uh, the U.S., of course, is always trying here and there. Mm. Our uh, Ronda movement is actually assembled here in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. Thailand, Thailand, of course, there's a lot of watches from Japanese brands that are assembled in Thailand and, and mm. also Malaysia. Um, mm. uh, there might be some in, 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 I don't know, there might be some in South Korea. I'm not totally sure. Uh, I know there's probably there's a couple suppliers there for sure, but so there 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 are a lot of other places there. I think the question is where you can do small batch electronics manufacturing, and and right. you know it's it's always that watches aren't going to be the primary thing that they're doing, but you see that a lot of countries are afraid of having total reliance on China for man, for manufacture of electronics. For sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're going to see all kinds of capabilities popping up all over Asia. Um, all over, you know, I think maybe even South America, possibly even Africa, where things like LCD screens or batteries or cables or, or you know, circuit boards or things like that mm -hmm. will start to be made there, I believe. Yes, yes. they're still going to have a curve on learning to produce quality. You know what I mean? It's easy to say, I'm going to do it. And then it's like, are you going to do it really well? So, I mean, um, one thing I've learned about Chinese and Chinese culture, I think they're bigger capitalists than almost anybody else I know, maybe except for my Norwegian brothers back up in Norway. <laughs> but, you know, the Chinese are hardcore capitalists, and you know that money is going to come back and rule that place. And I think that will happen. I, I have a feeling that it's going to bloom again. And there must be a younger generation in China right now that is starting to grow up with a different awareness. I mean, they've had smartphones. I know they're censored by most, but I mean, Stuff must be coming through, but I don't know. You want? Do you have Netflix? Yeah, I have Netflix. You want to see a documentary there that's called China Love. 
I was shocked. I saw it yesterday. It's like, wow, this is still going on in China. And it, yes, it is. And it's like, you'll be shocked. It teaches you a thing about, about Chinese culture. But I basically think, I don't, I don't really think they want war. I think they want success. I think they want money. So I'm going to bet on them blooming again. I am certainly not going to try to switch around my manufacturers right now. I have total faith in them. And we've been. Well, I just think it's an interesting question because a lot of this conversation revolved around the fact that you had very limited options of what you could get made. And with different types of factories means different types of styles, different types of materials. You would have more wells to dip in for various types Mm -hmm. of resources. And I think that's what's Mm -hmm. exciting because I think that the future of independent watchmaking is more independent makers of electronic watches ideas that you know uh, that really ra- you know range and vary some of them are purely artistic and fun others are very practical and utilitarian like yours um but right now it's like if you want to have independent watch it has to be mechanical because nothing else is available to you and i i feel like that's bound to change sooner or later i'm sure my guy would like to talk to them your guy to- like your manufacturer yeah, I mean, Keith, I'm Nathan. He's always looking for business. I mean, you can't knock me off because I'm going to kill you. But, you know, if you wanted to do something, <laughs> I think I think my guys would be interested in looking at more business. I'm not totally sure. But, you know, I have a whole network that I worked with for 10 years. They know quality. They, you know, they're, they're not stupid. These are very talented people. But you have to direct them and tell them what they want to do. But, you know, I wouldn't. I would think they would say yes to more business. Who wouldn't? I, look, I'm not surprised because we're, talk, we're talking – not just risk, but like an enormous level of vision. But it is kind of shocking that after I have been tracking independent brands who launched in Kickstarter and otherwise, I mean, I don't know how long that's been going on, the crowdfunding, 10 years now, maybe a little bit less. Mm. But the number of smartwatches or electronic watches like this is really, really small very, very little on the ones that do their own screens and things like that. Like, I'm not saying there's none, but you'd think that it's relatively low-hanging fruit. I mean, if if, if Casio G-Shock sells so many watches, right? People don't necessarily need it, and it's it's very old technology, most of them. Like, there are some state-of-the-art G-Shocks, but a lot of the ones that are sold are like the technology they came out with a long time ago. Mm. So there's this market out there for people to buy, like, fun, relatively inexpensive digital watches. Yet the competition in the space from an artistic or fun or like, it's just, it's very limited. There isn't a lot of it. People build around the screen, but no one really reinvents the screen. And various people have tried it. I just think that there needs to be a little bit more of a push. I mean, there are interesting technologies out there that allow the rendering of screens and stuff like that. I just, I, I don't know. I feel that they would do well if, if there was more market testing and I haven't seen that much out there. And, and that's just me just trying to predict collecting trends over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. I mean, to me, it seems like Apple Watch just revolutionized the whole thing. You know, I saw a severe dip in my sales once the Apple Watch was launched. What I offered on, of information was no longer needed for me. They got it in their Apple Watch. And they, they've also made, you know, wearing a watch much more fashionable again. They're kind of a double-edged sword. They've also made it more popular. So, I mean, I think a lot of I, I think a lot of that um, newness that you are talking about there, Apple just did it. You know what I mean? And you're going to be hard pressed to compete with that giant. That giant. It, but it's it's the emotional side, the artistic side. When the when the digital quartz watch becomes so cheap to manufacture, you can make fashion out of it. Um, mm. Think of like think of like the light up T-shirt. I know that that's not a common thing, of course, but there's this idea of where like you take a T-shirt and then you add little lights to it. It's extra eye catchy. It's fun. Uh, people sort of inherently get it. 
So I feel like there could be more fun, eye-catchy quartz watches with innovative I displays. I, I agree. I agree. You know what I, I mean? Like it, it's just an it, it's easy for consumers. And you said something about simplicity. Um, your watch is deep. I mean, one of the first things people notice about it is like, oh, there's so many buttons on it, right? Like I know, they get, I know. They they get intimidated, and you know, rightfully so. There is something to be said about just taking the core of functionality yeah, and yeah, rendering yeah. it. Yeah, rendering yeah. it for the mainstream. I don't want to say idiots, but just for the mainstream who like, it, you cannot learn anything new. You can't ask them to learn anything new because then they won't spend money. It's totally understandable. They teach you how to tell time when you're five years old and you never think about it again. Okay. It's been, it's been an established method of counting time for millennia. You know what I mean? So coming in and shaking this up is very challenging. It's very tricky, but I think there is room for what you're saying. I think there is. I mean, I see, you know, I see it in, for instance, mechanical watches, I saw the other day a really cool watch. I forget what the brand was, but they came out and they focused on the moon face. You know what I mean? And I said, wow, that's cool. They're, at least they're, they're doing moon face and they're covering that stuff. So I think it's, we're going to see more of it. I certainly see now on, on my smartphone, you know, it gives you time for sunrise and sunset. This is awareness about time that we didn't really have 20 years ago the same degree right right so someone who grows up with a phone that says sunrise sunset automatically mm -hmm. when they right. see it in sort of a fun artistic sense they will automatically realize i i have use for that information mm -hmm. i'm accustomed mm -hmm. to that i know mm -hmm. i know what to do with that yeah yeah that's been our show uh bjorn i want you to plug your website and anywhere else that people can find um information about yourself and of course the watches yeah, visit our website, yeswatch.com. I mean, that's basically our story is there. We have a, an Instagram at yeswatch underscore official. I think that's where I post kind of the latest news and my storytelling. The website is just more static. Uh, it's just the same kind of information, but you can shop there. You have our story. There is a, there is a, a section there on how we created this movement that I just wrote recently that People have told me this is the best way you have described your product to me so far, Bjorn. I understand more what you've done right now. So I would read that one. But I mean, you know, go to our website, yeswatch.com. My guest has been Mr. Bjorn Kartomten. He is the founder of YesWatch. You can learn more at yeswatch.com. As I said, thank you for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. <laughs>